Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. So our speaker this morning is Jerry Souter. Some of you may know him. Many of you might know him. He says he grew up in Columbia, Maryland. Anyone know where Columbia, Maryland is besides Jerry? It's outside Baltimore. Um, he got an associate degree in education from a community college. He got a bachelor's in economics from, I believe he said, the University of Maryland or some such, uh, and um, a master's in business administration as well. He also attended a small Bible college in central Ohio for five terms over two years. Uh, he's been a missionary to Kenya. He worked for IBM for some 25 years, and for the last six years, he's been the head of finance at Rosedale International. He's been married to Donna for 38 years, if his count is correct. He's, they've had four children, three of whom have been to RBC. You might know um, Andrew Souter or Rebecca Souter. Those are children of his and Donna's. And um, he has consented to come share his insight and his story with us this morning. I appreciate. Would you welcome Jerry? Well, good morning, everyone. Phil left out uh, the fact that my MBA was from Notre Dame. That's a very prestigious school, you know, even though it's, uh, it's, it's not Mennonite. You know? <laughs> anyway, uh, and also my oldest son is Jonathan, who also graduated from RBC back in... 2009, eight, somewhere there, I can't remember. It's, it's very nice to chat with you here this morning. Um, the purpose of this is to talk about vocation and you know, kind of what our life path has been. Um, just to open things up, I think it's important for us to recognize kind of the, the purpose and goal of work in life and how it's created by God. If you go back to the very beginning in Genesis, one of the first things that God told people after be fruitful and multiply was to fill the earth and subdue it. And the, the word picture associated with subdue is mostly like to, to trample on something or to have it under your feet. Uh, maybe you should think of it more like a dog that heals. He knows that you are the master. You are in control of him. But another word picture a little further down the definition list for subdue is the word to massage or to knead. And it's interesting because God was able to create out of nothing. You know, He spoke and the universe came into to being. He spoke when there was nothing and made something out of nothing. But then there's part of what God did that was also a recreation and as we're made in the image of God, we can participate in procreation by having families and creating a new human being that didn't exist before, um, using a few you know, cells of our body to create something new and different and unique, different than any other person who's ever lived. But we're also called to take the world that's around us and to kind of knead it into shape. Um, if you think about areas that you've ever gone... Um, that are undeveloped, just out into a woodland somewhere, or even a field that doesn't have, that no one has, has worked with, things get a little chaotic. Uh, the natural order of things is much more chaos than it is orderly things. I don't know if you've ever been to a forest 
where they replanted trees and every tree is exactly like 12 feet apart, you know, the whole thing. And it just looks ridiculous. I mean, you're, you're like, this is not the way it was made to be. It, clearly, this had some human intervention and they didn't really do a great job of it. Um, anyway, but so we have a purpose from the very beginning to knead into shape or to, to shape with our hands the world that's around us and to do something useful. God gave Adam and Eve responsibility to care for the garden, and all of this is before the fall. I think sometimes people look at work as like an evil, as there's something wrong with it, but work is something that gives us purpose. It gives us a clear calling for how we're supposed to live our lives. So we're supposed to create things, we're supposed to bring order out of chaos, and we're also supposed to serve other people. One of the biggest purposes of work is to produce something that is useful to someone else. The reason they pay you for your work is because you're providing some service of value. And if you don't think of it in those terms, if you don't think that you're always serving somebody and producing something that someone wants, um, then our understanding of work has gotten twisted and is, is out of place. So just to give that as a background. Now, I want to give you a brief life journey, as Phil has referenced. I grew up outside of Baltimore, Maryland, um, in, a, in a city that was planned, actually. So instead of just you know, chaotic buildings, like you, I'm driving out today and you can see somebody sold another farm on, one, uh, on 161 and you know, they, they're out there trying to turn another 200 acres into another 1,000 houses or whatever. Um, the city where I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, uh, a developer went around, bought up a whole bunch of farms without telling anybody, and built an entire city called Columbia, Maryland. It was a planned city. And probably was a little better than some of the, the chaotic building that we see in many places. Anyway, um, so I grew up there right, right after high school. I mean, we'll leave out whatever I was doing growing up. The first uh, year and a half after high school, I joined voluntary service under EMM. And I went up to Elmira, New York, what we did there, for the most part, was to rehab um, houses, low-income family houses in Elmira, New York. It was kind of a poor town. The Mennonites had gone in there when uh, a hurricane went through. Hurricane Agnes in 1972 came and flooded a lot of things, destroyed a lot of things. MDS came in and did work, and the Mennonites formed a group called Menno, uh, Menno Housing and rehabbed houses. So that's who, what we worked with. So I did that for a year and a half. I went back home and continued in construction for another year and a half or so. Um, and then I spent most of a year here, four out of five terms at, at Rosedale, um, Rosedale Bible Institute in those days. And after that, I kind of piddled around a little bit, uh, you know, with a couple of jobs. I went and worked in Oregon on a grass seed farm for a summer, and then I worked in a restaurant for a while. My main reason, I wanted to get enough money to go travel to Europe, and I went and stayed at Labrie, where Francis Schaeffer was for a few months, for like three months, and traveled a little bit around Europe. Um, then I came back home, and I'm like, ah, it's about time to get serious. Maybe I should go to college. So I started into college after about halfway through college. I got married, um, continued doing construction work off and on to pay my way through college, but then immediately after I graduated from the University of Maryland, my wife and I um, 
went to Kenya for a couple of years under Rosedale Mennonite Missions, we had met, I mean, I had met a lot of Kenyans who were studying here at Rosedale Bible College or Bible Institute at the time, and was just very interested in, in what they were doing. And I was interested in church work. So we went and spent two years there. Well, I came back, I had a degree, but I really didn't have any practical work experience in, in any of the corporate world or in education. I mean, in what I had studied in school, economics. So I decided it would be better if I went and got a graduate degree. And so then I spent the next two years at University of Notre Dame working on a graduate degree. Then from there, the first job I got was with IBM, the computer company, and I spent almost 25 years working for them. So quite a, quite a long period of time in corporate finance. Um, after 25 years of doing that, my son Andrew was here running the bridge program. He called me up one day and said, Dad, the chief financial officer for, for RMM has quit. You should apply for the job. And I took my son's advice, and that's what led me to, uh, to take a job at Rosedale. Um, so let me just talk about what it's like working in a corporate environment. When, when you talk about like the purpose of work and how God created us and, and all of those things, it is very easy to lose that kind of a mindset when you are working for a huge corporation. Essentially, you become like a cog in the wheel. I mean, you know, you're working on sites with literally thousands of people that are, are you know, on, on a particular site where they're working. You're working on very huge projects. Some of the things we worked on there were very, very interesting. So like the first six years with IBM, I was working with the division that dealt with federal contracts. And we did some, I mean, some very interesting contracts that were there. We had the contract for the air traffic control system, like the, the entire system that like the air traffic controllers who sit in the towers, what they see on their computers, it involves radar of planes coming in and every plane that's on the ground and how it's taken off and how do you manage to make sure they don't crash into each other. Um, but these are, I mean, really massive contracts that cost hundreds of millions of dollars, employ hundreds of programmers doing work for sometimes decades on end um, to get the work done. And I mean, I had colleagues that I worked with that when they turned in their resignation, they were given a, a cardboard box and said, gather your personal things on your desk and we're going to escort you to the door. And as, you know, as soon as you're not of any use to them, they walk you out the door and, and life for them is over. So we, we did the air traffic control system. We actually had the, the contract to do the original GPS system. So really doing the telemetry for the satellites that put the global positioning satellites in place that are your GPSs that now are, you know, on everybody's phone and everything else that can track everywhere you go. Originally, that was a contract that was for the Air Force and was only for, for military use, but eventually got opened up to civilians and everybody can use it. So lots of things like that that were telemetry contracts for, for satellite things. Um, we did a big contract one time for the IRS. <laughs> it was, I mean, it's just, you know, it's kind of amazing to me. But they designed this entire contract to take your tax returns and scan the information off of your tax returns, like not, not copy everything because the, the form, you know, they already knew the data on the form, but essentially to 
scan and extract what you had handwritten on your tax return. And after a couple of years and literally a couple hundred million dollars, um, they kind of figured out nobody's filling out paper tax returns anymore. The internet's becoming a thing and people are doing e-filing and they canceled the contract. And that's, that's kind of what your federal government does with your money sometimes. Um, the very first thing that I worked on at IBM, we spent a year and a half bidding on a contract. It was also for the Treasury Department. We ended up bidding $709 million to provide this entire system of what they were doing, um, what, you know, what their specs. And they awarded it to a different vendor, AT&T, who bid over double our price, $1.4 million because they, I mean, $1.4 billion with a B, because they liked their solution better than ours. And so you've spent a year and a half of your life working on something that's like, ah, okay, you lost. Well, that's done. Forget about it, you know. Um, anyway. <laughs> There's a saying that we often had, like, when you're working for a company like that, you're a small fish in a very big pond. And when you work for a small company, you're a, a big fish in a pretty small pond. But there's actually a lot more work satisfaction when you work on things where you have a bit of control. That's the way God created us. He created us to, to have purpose, to have some control over what we're doing. Um, so I, I mean, another thing I worked on now, again, when you start working with numbers and you start you know, doing big, big projects that you're working on, there's lots of zeros in the numbers that you're using. I mean, for a while, I had the responsibility of managing a $95 million overhead budget at the site we were working at. But then later, you know, you're working on projects of pricing up new jobs that were $750 million bids that you're putting into the government. And we managed a maintenance division that did nothing but fix computers that broke. And the, the revenue from that division was $1.8 billion in a year. And so you're really, I mean, you're really rounding things off to the nearest $100 million. Well, is it going to be $1.8 billion this year or $1.7 billion this year? Um, and even though you're working with massive numbers, eh, it doesn't necessarily uh, equate to job satisfaction. That is, that is it, it, matching the size of the amounts of dollars that you're working with. You also found out things, too, though, that some of the philosophy of what's behind, I mean, the idea that part, the purpose of work is to serve people and to provide a service that is valuable to them, that they're willing to pay for, that, that kind of mentality is not always held by corporations. They're more, how can I squeeze the very last penny out of what I'm trying to do here? So we're working for that maintenance division. When I started with them... We were, running a, um, we were running our maintenance contracts at a 35% gross profit margin in rough terms. And that, seem, that means like for every dollar that we got in a maintenance contract, we were spending 65 cents to actually fix the computers. But after we figured out, you know, the world has changed here. We're no longer needing to have warehouses all over the country. We now have companies that can 
overnight parts to people all over the country. So instead of having, whatever, 10 or 12 warehouses around the country with parts everywhere, we consolidated everything down to one warehouse, used overnight shipping to get the parts out to the technicians who were going to go fix your computers. And over a period of like four years, we went from 35% gross profit to 75% gross profit. And instead of spending 65 cents for every dollar we brought in, we we're only spending 25 cents for every dollar that we brought in. And, you know, eventually, I think people get a little, you know, suspicious. Hey, am I buying something that's worth it here? Are those extended warranties really worth it? Eh, probably not. Um, but, I, well, so let me, let me just divert from corporate life a little bit. At the same time that I'm working in corporate life, I hadn't totally forgotten about some of my construction things that, that I was doing. And so on the side, I would buy, you know, old beat up houses, like foreclosed houses. As my boys started growing up, I'd get them to work with me on these houses. And I often found, like, if you really want to get ahead in the corporate world, you're going to have to work six days a week and long hours in order to get ahead in that world. I did not feel comfortable spending that amount of time away from my family. So I would find projects that I could do with my boys and we'd go work on, on Saturdays or in evenings working on other projects. And we found it was much more actually satisfying to work with something where you had some control. You could actually apply your creativity and your ability to do things, um, had choices that you could make. I'm painting a pretty bleak picture of corporate life, I, I suspect, here. Um, now, I, I would also suspect, though, most of the communities that our people come from, that you're much more used to working for smaller businesses, companies that are family-owned, um, places where you do have a bit more input into what goes on, w without having to, you know, in a sense, sell your soul to the company and be a person that's working... 12-hour days, six days a week in order to, to rise to the top of the corporate ladder. It was never my intention. Um, so we, we used to, I used to do projects with my boys. I mean, we'd, one time they wanted to go on a mission trip. Neither one, of the, neither one of my boys could drive at the time, so I think they were 15 and 16, but neither one had, a, I mean, even the 16-year-old didn't have a license. They wanted to go on a mission trip to Kenya. We were raising money to do that. Um, there was a guy in our church that wanted his uh, wanted a basement to be finished off, and he had gotten a bid for thirty two thousand dollars to do it. And I sat and figured it all out and said, "We can do that for eighteen thousand dollars," you know, with my boys doing it. And so they were being homeschooled um, for the entire summer. I would just take them to the job in the morning because they couldn't couldn't drive. I'd write down on a piece of paper, "These are the jobs that you need to do today." I'll be back when I'm done work, and I'll come see how much progress you've made, and we'll do it. And, I mean, I can honestly say they did a beautiful job, especially for the level of experience they had. It turned out really, really nice. And they figured out how to, how to do framing and insulation and wiring and hanging drywall and putting up uh, a wooden, it was like a tongue-and-groove wooden ceiling and doing all the, the wood trim in the house and... The work that they did, I mean, we were matching what had been done in another part of the basement. 
the work that they did turned out better than what the professionals had done as far as the neatness of, of how they did it. And um, I still can't believe my friend trusted like two teenage boys to take on the job, but he did. And they not only paid for their mission trip, but they actually had you know, made excess money on by doing that for the summer. And the satisfaction that you got from, you know, when I consider an $18,000 project to the $1.8 billion thing that I'm doing for my job, you know, the size of it, you wouldn't think they compare, but there's much more satisfaction with something that you have control over and know that you are serving well, doing a good job, having some control over what you do. Um, so the entire time that I was working I, for you know, IBM, I was also just very involved in our church and you know, served different roles in our, in our church over the years. I mean, you, you name it, elder and deacon and a really interim pastor and uh, trustee and royal ranger commander and Sunday school teacher and you, whatever, whatever roles came along, that was always very, very important to me. From the two years that Don and I spent in Kenya, we, well, first of all, I'll just say, Spending a period of time in a different culture gives you a different worldview. It opens your mind to things, and in some ways, you're never 100% satisfied in any culture that you exist in. Even when you go back home, you've changed, and you look at America different than you did before you went. And you kind of ask questions, why do we do things like that here? Things that you never questioned before. It gives you a broader appreciation of, of what other people are like and what a, a culture is like that is much more community-oriented and not quite so individualistic as what you find our culture is. Um, a culture that has rich hospitality and a willingness of people to sacrifice on behalf of strangers in ways that Americans would really be challenged to do. Um, so our, our church that we were in, New, well, the last 20 years of my time, we were living in New York State. I had transferred up there with IBM. Um, our church there did get very involved in doing leadership training in various countries, and I started making some trips with our pastor and doing training things. The boys and my daughters went on mission trips to various countries. Um, again, as you begin to interact with other cultures, you also see work in a different light. You see how cultures have a higher value on, on family and on community than they do on projects. They're more people-oriented than project-oriented, and it affects the way you think about things. Um, because of that, I mean, I never lost my heart for seeing the gospel being proclaimed in places where, it's, where Jesus is not known and for unreached people to hear the message of the gospel. Um, prior to, to agreeing to come to Rosedale uh, to, to work in the missions office, my wife and I had both felt very clearly that our time in New York was done. And at one point, about, it was about a year before the job came uh, open with Rosedale, we found out that IBM was opening a very large branch in Kenya. 
and I applied for the job. I went through some interviews. It came down to two guys and they gave the job to the other guy. And so it just kind of fell through. But we, we just really sensed that God was leading us somewhere else. Well, my son Andrew had told me that the you know, finance job was open. But in one 24-hour period, I found out three things. One, um, that Joe Showalter called me. I mean, and we had roomed together for one six-week term and we're on student council together at Rosedale years ago. So, you know, we knew each other from way back. Joe called me and said, are you, are you really interested in this job? You should come talk to me. Then my boss informed me, the new company is offering a buyout to all senior staff and they'll pay you double the normal severance pay if you take this package that we're offering. And then out of the blue, a real estate agent called me and said, I saw your house on Zillow. It was not listed for sale, but I saw your house on Zillow. I have someone who's interested in buying it. Could, would you be interested in selling your house? All three things happened within a 24-hour period. And I just was like, I, I think maybe God's saying something to me here. This, this might be the way to go. Anyway, long story short, I have been much more fulfilled even when I'm doing the, the, the finance part of my job at Rosedale than I was for 25 years at IBM. The joy that I find in going to work every day is just not, com not comparable. And I feel like in some ways I have two parts of my job. My heart is with the work and with the workers and with the, the gospel going out. My brain is able to still think numerically and you know do math in my head and count numbers and make sure that we're being fiscally responsible with how we do things. Um, but even when I'm just doing the part that requires my, my brain and it's not my heart engaged as much, there's still much more fulfillment because I sense the purpose and the calling which is behind it. And just as a way to encourage all of you, I would certainly encourage you to look for places where you feel a calling, where your work will make a difference to the organization, where you will have some control over what you are doing instead of just being a cog in the wheel, so to speak, of, of a great big organization. I'm going to stop and see if anybody has any questions you want to ask me. <laughs> Did I ever make a mistake where the business lost a lot of money? Um, no, I mean, I've made, I've made personal mistakes, you know, that affected me in my personal finances, but no, I, n never anything that was... Now, there were times when we messed up. I mean, there was times when, because a lot of the job when you're doing financial things. In finance, what you're doing is making budgets and making projections about where things are going to come out. So you have to forecast like where your sales are going to be, where your expenses are going to be, what your gross profit margin is going to be. You have to make projections on those things. And so there's lots of times we made mistakes. I mean, sometimes we missed it badly. You know, just the economy changed in a different direction and what we thought was going to happen never happened. 
So it's not that we did things perfectly, but it was never a mistake that my mistake caused them to lose all kinds of money. There's an interesting story, though, with IBM. It was, I mean, it's a very famous story, but there was a guy working there that really did just totally screw up. And he lost the company a million. I mean, he made a million dollar mistake, literally a million dollar mistake, cost the company all kinds of money. And well, if you read the news this week, CNN just made a $300 million mistake by starting some streaming service that they invested $300 million in and canceled it after a month. Um, so those types of things do happen. So this guy, he made a terrible mistake. His manager calls him into the office, starts, okay, you know, what were you thinking? How did, how did you make this decision? How did, went through the whole steps. Like if you were doing it again, how would you do it differently? All that. And um, when he got done, Manager goes, okay, see ya. The guy goes, you're not going to fire me? And the manager told him, he goes, I just spent a million dollars training you. Why would I fire you now? That's a, that's a very good question. How did the classes I took at Rosedale help me in my business life? Well, I, I will answer your question in a slightly roundabout way. Um, being at Rosedale really helped me immensely spiritually. And again, I don't want to necessarily disparage the way I grew up, but there, there are um, three different things that, that affected the course of my life from Rosedale. One, I, I did not grow up in a very encouraging environment in the churches. It was uh, a very legalistic. There's a blue rule book of what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And it talked about how long dresses had to be and that guys couldn't wear neckties and you couldn't go to movies and you couldn't go to ball games and you couldn't have a TV in your house and you couldn't, whatever. I mean, it was just like rule, 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 rule. And my hair was a little too long. I was a little too loud. I was whatever. I was not the pastor's favorite. Let's put it that way. When I came to, to Rosedale, um, especially Willard Mayer was just a very encouraging person. And it was the first time in my life when I had a, a spiritual leader that was really encouraging to me. And it, it, changed, it changed the way I viewed the leadership in the, in the Mennonite church, just in a, you know, in a broad sense. Number two, um, the, the class that Leon Weber taught on Romans changed the way that I thought about the security of my salvation and whether, whether I was secure in, in you know, what, I, what I knew to be true. And the, I still remember the question that was asked in a class one day. He just asked the question, how, how many of your sins were still in the future when Jesus died on the cross for you? And that question made me realize, even though I wouldn't have articulated it this way, my, my mindset was when I accepted Christ, all my past sins were forgiven, but that God's still holding all my mistakes against me moving forward. Number three, the enthusiasm for missions and the vitality, spiritual vitality of the Kenyan students 
affected the direction of my life. And it affected it in the, in the willingness that I was to go and join what they were doing there. And because of that, um, my mindset and my worldview was changed forever. So maybe you remove all those things and I would have become a better corporate drone and would have just worked harder and done nothing but serve the company. Um, but it gave me a different worldview as to what is really important. And it, it probably made me less valuable to the company, but much more valuable to my kids and family and to my church. <laughs> um, you know, it, part of the reason um, is because our family became very entrenched in our church, and we had very good friends there. We had three other families that we would vacation with. They had kids about the same ages in our, as ours, and... Um, we just really loved them and wasn't, were not willing in the middle of life to upset that balance in the family, I guess. Um, and I don't, I don't think I regret that. I mean, I could have maybe switched to some other type of a job. I didn't, I didn't really dislike the work. So I, I never actively disliked it. It was just the higher purpose was missing. I mean, it was, like my head's always been pretty good with numbers and that that type of thing, you know. I I enjoy doing that. Um, so the short answer, family purpose, family reasons, really. And once the youngest was out of the house, that's when we're like, okay, God's going to tell us to do something else. We don't know where it's going to be, but we're we're out of here as soon as the next door opens. <laughs> Well, if no other questions, Phil has requested that I leave you with a prayer of blessing. Lord, today we are thankful for every young life that is represented here. We're thankful for young people that are seeking you, seeking your purpose, seeking your calling. I want to pray for them today. I want to pray that you give them self-awareness to know how they're created, how you knit them together in their mother's womb and how they're fearfully and wonderfully made to have an understanding of where their gifts and talents lie and what areas of their life they will be most fulfilled in pursuing. I want to pray that you give them eyes to see the needs that are around them, a willingness to serve others, a willingness to work hard and to be a blessing in their chosen profession. I want to pray that their hearts would always be set on you. That each one would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, would know what it means to make Jesus the highest priority, to seek his face. 
want to pray the way they interact with people on their job would reflect Jesus, would reflect kindness and encouragement, would be full of joy, that they would always value people above projects, and that they would work well, but also love well and treat people well. May Jesus bless you and keep you. May Jesus make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Jesus lift up his face upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.